0: If you go to our website, we will have a merch section. No, we have, well, I, I, can't, I, I can't get this right. You could, you, you could just say by the time this episode airs, if you
1: go yeah. to our- Yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah.
0: There we go, okay. So, <laughs> by the time this episode airs. Oh, man, yeah, this is just like violating the time continuum in my head. I can't, I can't just think in the future. Yeah. Before we dive into things into the thick of things, we had some stuff we wanted to bring up and chat about real quick. A few episodes ago, beginning of this year, we had some announcements, new website, new ways to support the podcast, new brand, new logo, new hosts, new <laughs> <laughs> um, But a podcast wouldn't be complete readerer without merch. so so Indeed. it's been a long time coming, and we've talked about it a bit in the past, but we now finally have merchandise. So if you go on our website, we'll have a merch section. We will have the classics, the essentials. We'll have the T-shirts for those who want to get ahead on the summer. We'll have the hoodies for those who <laughs> want to bundle up during the winter. <laughs> we will have coffee mugs and probably some surprises.
1: Yeah, we'll have some surprises. We'll, we'll leave it at that um yeah suffice to say if uh if you think that everyone has been making a big fuss about the flu for the last year you'll be very disappointed with at least one of our items (laughs) 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 um yeah no i mean if if you guys if you guys are wondering um you know how can i how can i rep slash advertise slash just generally wear the cool swag of your favorite classical music podcast.
0: Um, You know, you're in luck. Yeah. And if you want extra credit, wear it to your rehearsal. I mean, that's going to make you look really cool.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I I know for a fact that once our merch hits, anytime that I see another human being in person, I'll be wearing our merch. So, you know, I (laughs) I will become a walking
0: horse advertisement for myself and you should too clear out your closets people <laughs> yeah get ready yeah but honestly like our i mean i'm biased i think our logo is pretty awesome but it's a cool conversation starter mm-hmm. right if you're in the checkout line at trader joe's or something yeah you know and so. and boy is anything
1: anything really a conversation starter when you're at trader joe's checkout line they <laughs> they will talk to you about literally anything so you
0: know <laughs> they're trained to talk to you about literally anything. I know yeah I'm, I'm convinced yeah so yeah but anyway all kidding aside yeah we're pumped you know it's cool it's a great way to support the show if you want to support us and also get something cool to to have it will ship around the u.s and i guess around north america and europe it sounds like
1: i think so I we'll think have to
0: double check on that but I, you, i'm pretty sure
1: yeah yeah the the, sto- the store will let you know so and and we'll needless to say we'll put a link in the in the show notes for for the for the Teespring site so
0: you can go browse yep. our wares and and choose something out. Dude, if you could get anyone in the classical music world to wear our swag, who would it be?
1: Ooh, that is a good question. Um, does it matter what sw- like what swag are we talking? Like just a t-shirt?
0: Let's say just a t-shirt let's say just a t-shirt
1: all right i have uh i can't decide between two people but i'm
0: i'm gonna i I have one in mind all right go for it yeah so i would say i just think it'd be a good accomplishment as well as you know he's a great musician as well but joshua bell ooh, nice he's a great violinist he's very out there he's very public we also have our alumni our alma maters in common so it's Within reach, it'd be a great story for the alumni newsletter that I don't read. <laughs> uh, but also, I think it's within reach, because Jeremy Dink follows us on Twitter. True. Yeah, we, we
1: should we should tweet at him and, and see if we can make it happen. That would be good.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we could, we could just keep bothering him on Twitter until he either wears our merch or um, sends it to Josh Bell or just unfollows us if you're listening anyway, and
0: he's a brilliant artist. I mean we didn't we, we didn't talk about that part. He's a <laughs> yeah. really phenomenal pianist. <laughs> yeah, he's
1: he's certainly one of the most interesting musicians alive today. He's also a phenomenal writer and he's really funny and I love the way that he thinks about music. He, he's really one of the few people who it's not it's not only that I admire his playing, but I, I admire his whole way of being a musician, which is which is rare because there's so many ways to be a musician mm. that um Fair, you know yeah. even great musicians their way is not necessarily your way, but um, his life is is somewhat of a sort of model for, for for um for for my own. You know, like I think what he does as an intellectual and a musician is something worth doing, which I don't I don't say of any of most people.
0: We'll send one free to Joshua, and hey, you know, we'll send one to Jeremy too. So yeah. That's all.
1: That's <laughs> not good. And on us. And, and Joshua Bell already wear wears T shirts, you know, in con- in some concerts. <laughs> yeah, Carnegie Hall. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> oh what, this whole thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he does perform in some very um non formal attire. I mean, some sometimes he really does like just the black untucked dress shirt yeah he's performed in that a few times which i dig which actually i'm I'm all cool for it yeah. yeah you know i don't think you have to perform in a in a tux with a tail and you're not getting married you know it's just yeah it's a just you know thursday evening concert right so also if your violin is
1: like four million dollars i think you can stand to you know dress <laughs> down a little so you know. yeah yeah that'll be cool that, that's a good that's a good choice that's better than my my choice um well i'm curious Rich. now I mean, we might have to cut this, but I was thinking if we could get Yujo Wang to wear one of our T-shirts. Um, but but like just just a T-shirt, yeah.
0: <laughs> like XXL, like yeah. the boyfriend
1: tee. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: I I was really just purely thinking about it in terms of clicks, so. <laughs> I mean to be fair our colors are black and white right I mean yeah perfect for a formal attire concert right exactly is, you know, dress code black and white <laughs> black tie uh yeah dress code black tie
1: my my other choice was um undershirt just cuz it would be great to see him in a t-shirt <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah andrea schiff i mean how old is he he's in his 70s at least right i mean yes 70s yeah and um he has such a lovely hungarian accent when he speaks and stuff i mean the question is yeah it'd be really funny because he's one of those people we all know these people but i don't think he owns a t-shirt
2: yeah
0: (laughs) right i don't think he's ever worn a t-shirt he's just always in his match classes. he's always in a suit at least right or a jacket or a collar shirt so
1: yep it's the way to be, man. <laughs> That'd be pretty good. It's the way to be. <laughs>
0: um, I, I like how we both thought of this from a clicks perspective, but two different angles on how to get clicks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Yours is like most memeable. Mine is like actually the best PR marketing move. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I'm thinking, you know, we don't
1: need to necessarily come out looking good at the end of this. We just need to like come out a <laughs> with a lot of clicks. <laughs>
0: Last time, Streeter, we talked about. A certain piece by Mozart by the name of Allegro in D, which was composed in 2021. (laughs) 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 Um, No, so anyway, but okay, so last time we talked about a newly discovered and then premiered or re-premiered piece by Mozart, Allegro in D. And at the time of recording, we recorded it. We recorded that episode on Mozart's birthday uh the 27th right Mm. was that the 27th of january yeah of of january yeah yeah and so that piece was probably being premiered around the time we were recording the podcast Mm -hmm. so we knew about the piece but we hadn't listened to it yet but this time now in some follow-up we can actually maybe add a a thought or two to our conversation last time now having listened to the piece or should we listen to the piece in real time shooter let's do it all right so we're off to the races shooter literally sounds like it are we even indie oh yeah we are okay (laughs) (laughs) um i mean
1: i would just like to point out the sort of remarkable left hand here you know it's dense contrapuntal Everything you come to expect from Mozart, it is, uh, it's doing a lot of work.
2: (laughs)
0: Yeah, all all these quarter notes, I mean. So here we have a sort of classic
1: spineless Mozart. Um, We're in basically a whole different, uh, whole different mood here.
0: grab some food yeah yeah Uh, (laughs) i'm gonna go i'm gonna go get a drink here that about sums it up Uh, i mean yeah it's it's fine like i mean we talked about last time this is do what you gotta do in the age of coronavirus to get attention on the ever-competitive attention span of people uh, when it's... Yeah, so when the internet is crowded these days, and you got to do what you got to do to stand out. So I totally get that, totally respect that, but come on, this piece is a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is fucking terrible. Like, this, is, this, is, this sucks balls. Like, <laughs> keep going, keep going. Um, I do wonder like everyone that was um involved in this like we watched if you watch the actual performance now, they introduce it with quite a bit of passion and excitement and they're excited to play it and talk about it deep down these people must they know that this is bullshit <laughs>
1: yeah that that's actually something i wanna to get to in a l in a little bit um you know first let's just quickly quickly make like i want to make a couple of quick observations um this piece is 94 seconds long, I think. Um, and is that right? No, it's, it's, an, uh, it's, it's about, um, a hundred seconds. A hundred seconds. I yeah. Think.
0: <laughs> Come on, dude, give credit where credit is due. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, um, you know, a not insignificant part of it is repeats. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's ridiculous. And, um, it sounds, you know, there there are three points here, which I think this piece really drives home. One of which is uh, Mozart is the easiest composer to imitate. You know, if you wanted to make fun of yeah. Mozart, it, it this piece plays like something Victor Borgo would have played, like we were saying last time. Um, like a little ditty yeah. that you play to make fun of Mozart. Um, the, the, the second thing
0: is yeah, that... T- Parody, I, I think, is a, a good. Sure, to parody word. Mozart is better yeah. than to make fun yeah. of. Um, yeah, parody by inexact imitation, but you wouldn't know better if I told you otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Boom. There you yeah. go.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, well
0: put. Um,
1: the, the other thing is that somewhere, I forget where, but Glenn Gould um, compares a lot of Mozart compositions to, to sort of inter office memos and this really has that vibe <laughs> um this really this really seems like a piece that is a non-entity in terms of something that's actually a composition and and like you were saying everyone knows this everyone must know this um yeah yeah the the other thing i would just quickly like to observe is is that um you know it's it's hard to it's hard to just, it's hard to define what a cliche is in a sort of meaningful way but if a cliche, without a being a cliche. Without, exactly without without devolving into cliche. But um if if the word cliche is to mean anything, it it's something like to to devalue the the currency of the phrase but like through overuse to the point that um the that given phrase has no meaning anymore, you know? And I think this is one of one of the major flaws of Mozart, which is that um any one of the things that he does in this particular piece is is fairly, it could be seen as fairly cool. Um, but Mozart right. has himself, through his own compositions, by using the, this kind of figure over and over again, has devalued the currency of it uh, to the point that we can hear this piece now. And it doesn't sound like anything that's fresh. It sounds like it's a, uh, it's a parody of itself, like you said. Um, right. So, you know. And to, to go to what I was saying, I wanted to, to like, you know, the, the people who are talking about this piece at this festival, um, you know, they're they're great musicians. They they have to know yeah. that this piece is is a bunch of garbage. And it's really frustrating because, you know, I, I didn't get this in last time, but most of my frustration with Mozart is, is not with Mozart per se, but with the way that he is sort of talked about and perceived um, hmm. like in the classical music world and hmm. and sort of outside it too, um, yeah. And I don't understand why it is that you know you get to certain pieces like this one or certain composers like Mozart, where we are like the, the kind of conversation that we have right here, where we're just sort of. We treat this piece as a non-entity. You know? This is neither right. damning nor exalting of Mozart's skill as a composer. This piece is a big, fat nothing. <laughs> and so many, so many musicians talk about it like this privately. And yet when, when, it, becomes, wh- when it comes turn to do the sort of public facing aspect of their job, um, they turn into sycophants for the music. And there's this attitude of, um, you know, the, my favorite piece of music is the thing that's on my stand right now. You've heard that before, surely. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> I don't get it. It's really frustrating because I don't know why musicians... Classical music would be so much more fun if musicians could just honestly be like, this is a piece of crap. And you know what? That's, that's the nature of being prolific. This dude wrote like 650-ish Pieces that were published, and probably a lot more. 651 now, Streeter. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> and uh, they're not all going to be good. In fact, most of them are going to be nothing. So. Right.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, this piece is just... yeah, Dude, it's not even a piece. This is just kind of... It, again, what you kind of said last time, this is probably just a transcription, maybe, something Mozart improvised yeah. at a party. Exactly.
1: <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. The, this reads exactly yeah.
0: like that. This reads
1: like... Someone either came up with a melody or sort of a left-hand figure and said as a challenge, "Could you improvise something based on this?" And he said, "Voila!" Right, and this is Right. It. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, this this yeah, is no, the equivalent I mean, this... of like
1: having lunch with Elon Musk, and he draws <laughs> like a picture of a rocket for you on a napkin and you know 200 years later they're making like a big deal of it uh and it's like yeah. no this this is this is nothing you know this is nothing compared to what he actually does uh as part of his work right and i don't know i can't help but think that like yeah. classical music institutions um they devalue their own currency by attaching their name so vigorously to stuff like this like it's not a good look you know
0: as we said last time the much is a really great organization i mean they are a powerful good force in the classical music world Mm -hmm. now i'm sure all the all the musicians at the mozartian were like "Fuck this (laughs) but the suits (laughs) yep yeah and again we've said this a few times now but i do think it bears saying i mean if it wasn't a pandemic year i have a hard time believing this would have come to be and kind of come to be this thing of attention it would probably just be like a quick headline that lives for a few hours on the internet like oh by the way there's something else by Mozart we didn't know about here it is you know exactly make of it what you want but gearing it up to be this big premiere showcase the best part of the analysis yeah <laughs> and uh and the show note or show notes the program yeah. notes yeah and there's some dude like unveiling the manuscript with his white gloves and um do you see yeah. that yeah that guy i forget his name yeah he's he's a tenor i think right he's a Oh, no, he was just a presenter.
1: Yeah, that's, um, is his name Rolando, um, is it Viazone or something like that?
0: He's really Italian, I know. I've heard him in interviews and... Yeah, yeah, I I don't know what he is, but, um,
1: yeah, I think he was just a presenter, but there was actually some sort of, like, curator-looking person, um, who was, like, handling the manuscript and, like, the real, the real thing, not just a copy of it, um, no, there was like a whole hoopla around it, and yeah, you're right. This, this, again, to don my most cynical hat, I can't help but notice that this piece was discovered in 2018, and it is now 2021. <laughs> and yeah, I'm not on saying it's birthday. Yeah, on know, just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying they like stashed it away for a rainy day. But I think you're exactly right that this is something that would have been like a cute headline that lives on the internet sort of virally or virally by classical music standards for a week less than a week probably a few days yeah um and it would have gotten some clicks yeah, and i said a few hours, hours so. yeah
0: <laughs> exactly and,
1: and it would have gotten some more clicks their way and you know that, that would be all that's said about it but there's like a whole fucking mini documentary about this piece on youtube you know they spend right, more time right. talking about this piece guarantee they spend more time talking about this piece than mozart ever spent thinking about it
0: <laughs> yes exactly exactly <laughs> um, unbelievable this is the equivalent of um us uncovering a sketch by monet of like a a lily pad
1: (laughs) yeah exactly yeah and not a
0: particularly
1: like not even a particularly good one like it's not even one that you can draw a clear line being like oh this was the sketch that he made before he ended up doing the water lilies
0: i don't know maybe i'm like also just trying to not be too cynical. It's like, I I get it, I get it, it's for the headlines, but I don't know, I I don't want to give them that clear a pass at the same time. It's also like, dude, this piece right here, I hate to say this, I love the Mozartium, they are, they're really great for classical music. So I feel bad saying this, but this is why people don't like classical music.
1: I'm glad you said it, I mean, that's, no, I I was thinking (laughs) the same thing, I I didn't want
0: to say, but you're right. You're right. Aren't you proud of me? I... Yeah, I am. Usually I'm the one trying to rein in Shrita. Like, <laughs> oh, you don't really mean that Shooter <laughs> Yeah,
1: oh, how the turntables um...
0: have turned or whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how the turntable has stopped. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, it's like, if you listen to this, and this was like the first thing in Mozart you really sat down and listened to consciously, which I'm willing to bet that's not no one. Yeah. I'm willing to bet with the headlines and such and now this hoopla around this new uncovered piece it sounds like you know indiana jones found this in a tomb that he had to escape from and sort of thing <laughs> the way the story is told yeah so in the article they said it's making the classical music community set up in their seats that was the yeah, quote yeah so uh, yeah so i can imagine someone that maybe hasn't really ever sat down and consciously listened to classical music before. Now hearing this whole story and this whole event and, wow, this is shaking the classical music world, I can see someone for the first time sitting down, putting on their headphones and consciously just listening to a whole piece of Mozart, and this is what they listen to.
1: <laughs> and it's not fun being, uh, you know, it's kind of the the, the term du jour, but um, it's not fun being gaslit like that, you know? There are going to be a lot of people, probably, maybe not a lot of people, but there's going to be a fair amount of people who, who listen to this and, and they're going to think rightfully, this doesn't seem like much. This is not that great. (laughs) And, and and yet there's all this hoopla. (laughs) Yeah. And yet there's all this hoopla (laughs) around it by, you know, like great institutions and great musicians, um, who again, are very likely doing this for sort of more practical fiscal reasons, um, they you know they're putting their sort of stamp of approval on this and i think that's another aspect of classical music that a lot of people are turned off by this the sense that there's a right, lot of right. be, let's let's face it there's a lot of sort of bs around a lot of the culture of classical music and most people can sort of mm-hmm. pick up on it cuz i think most people have pretty good bs sensors and when they are yeah. they're sort of blatantly Lied to or gaslit like this—it's not a good feeling. You—it doesn't make you want to be part of the culture. It doesn't want to make you feel part of the community. You know, I think dressing up for concerts is another example of this. Um, yeah, yeah, it's another example where everyone is like, "This is this does not need to be a thing," and yet you know, in certain places, it's made such a big deal about it um, that uh, you know, again, it's just I think people sense like, okay, these people are these people are being insular about their community in a way that's that's a real turnoff and and yeah. and i wonder you know it it could be true that they're doing this because you know times are tough in covid et etc but i can't help but think that this probably didn't get them that much revenue and if right, they were being right. smart and actually reached out to you know uh, communities outside of classical music in in sort of smarter and more genuine ways than than this um I can't help but think that they would have that their 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 advertising bucks could have gone a long way further than this, you know, because this is not trying right. to reach out to anyone. This is trying to get people to to come into your realm and um, not in a particularly good way either. So I don't know. It it, right. it doesn't. I can't right. imagine anyone really seeing the fiasco around this, um, and really being like, oh, this is a culture that I really
0: want to like invest in and be a part of, you know and especially with like the whole act around it like again pretending that the whole classical music world was wow, you know, all into this and all all about it. It's like, wow, so not only did I not like this crappy piece of music, but everyone else did. Yeah. <laughs> everyone else in the circle did. So, it makes us look bad, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's exactly it. It's the stuff around
1: it more than the piece itself. Like obviously I am a classical musician. I'm in the community or whatever, but watching this made me feel dirty i i felt bad about doing what i do and i needed to sort of go and try to engage with the better parts of what i think to be the better parts of the classical music world um just to sort of start feeling better about what i do because you know you watch this and there's a sense of like this is not this this industry is not going in a good way <laughs> if this is uh yeah. if this is what the great institutions are are up to you know um and as if that's the feeling that someone inside the culture gets you know i i can't i can't imagine that a lot of people were really turned on to um the mozartium by watching this sort of uh this big fiasco but you know
0: whom i don't have the focus groups so i don't know who knows when i listened to it for the first time after 10 seconds or so i just i just thought to myself "Fuck this (laughs) 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 Yeah, yeah this is uh, yeah i mean okay we've made our point yeah you know it's <laughs> Let, let's let's forget about this
1: piece uh as i'm sure mozart did very very soon after he yeah wrote it.
0: just two thumbs down but yeah you know who's counting and <laughs> we did make a point when we started this podcast that you know there's a there's a lot to not like in the classical music circle by the people that are in it i mean i think that's with any circle yeah. right the people that are in it there's things not to like we, we always kind of said, and we agreed upon this when we were embarking upon this podcast adventure that we won't attack individuals. We we won't attack individuals, you know, performers, orchestras, musicians. We, we won't do that, but institutions are fair game.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Cause there, there's never a good reason to, to engage in sort of musician on musician, um, Warfare, you know, like we're all just trying to do our thing and and get by, you know um, But it's the it's those goddamn suits running the <laughs> running the institutions You know, it was someone's idea to put uh, to put Rolando via up there and it wasn't Rolando's I'll tell you that for sure 100% <laughs>
0: All right, so, all right, now for some real stuff, cool. So uh, one of the topics I had in mind for today is this. So it's interesting, in pop culture, and then also in just reality in the, in the real classical music world, there are some countries I think that have a heavier weight in classical music than others. What I mean by that, right? So, so when we think classical composers, usually we think of Germany right Uh, or I guess it was before Germany actually became a country in the 1880s but we think of the German composers right we think of Russia Russia had a lot of great composers we to some extent think of Italy I mean of course no I'm sorry we have to think of Italy um they did more than opera they with gabrielli and vivaldi yeah so we think of italy too <laughs> sorry i forgot about some of the bigger names <laughs> is that what they do on is that is that is that
1: the slogan on italy's tourism board italy we did more than opera
0: <laughs> of countries that don't need a tourism board <laughs> italy's one of them <laughs> Yeah. Like I've I've never seen I've never seen a travel to Italy commercial. <laughs> like I see the pure Michigan commercials out here and things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not to throw your home state under the bus. No, when I no, lived no, no. in the Midwest I saw California commercials all the time. <laughs> like <laughs> especially when Arnold was governor. Like visit California. <laughs> I want to be the people's governor. <laughs> no, it's the it's the sort of
1: it's the so. we're already derailed, I love it. But it's it's um yeah, you know, it's like when you if you go to if you go to uh, a city's Wikipedia page, um, you already you always know that the city is sort of a subpar city if it has a section on it that is famous people from the city. You know, the real <laughs> cities don't need that. So.
0: Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Does New York have a tourism office? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but cool. So yeah, in the classical classical music world, when we think of the classical music powerhouse countries the world cup of classical music right (laughs) the finals are going to come down to germany italy sometimes the world world cup it comes down to that too i was gonna say the the Um, countries look a lot alike (laughs) yeah russia um maybe not so much yeah not so much um uruguay yeah (laughs) Yeah. Uh, america um but no i mean france I, i'd put up there too yeah for sure. you know sure may, maybe the great symphonies we don't think of france as the first country but heck for a lot of the great chamber music a lot of the t- great 20th century music france hands and hands down is in is in the quarterfinals i would say yeah um and baroque music yeah oh sure yeah duh how, how do i not think of, of broke broke music and and um and if we go way back to you know Gregorian stuff and medieval music, a lot of that stuff was was centered in and around Paris. So yeah, so yeah, so France is definitely up there. Um, England to a lesser degree, uh, let's say. There are some English composers. Handel was technically Austrian, but really spent his career in in England and in London you know um yeah there's a few more i mean england i think is more famous for its world-class performers than its world-class composers there's a lot of great english orchestras and english opera and ballet companies and english men and english women uh that do great things in classical music so there's that one of the countries we don't think so much as a european classical music powerhouse is spain right so the music of the iberian peninsula to be fair, too, this is also a stress in our classical music education, even where we went to school, I think anywhere, right? There's a focus on the Germanic composers, the Russian composers, a bit less of a focus on composers from Latin America, composers from Spain, composers from, I mean, smaller parts of Eastern Europe. You know, we all know the big Eastern European composers, but Croatia, Swiss composers, there's there's a lot. So, But I do want to focus on Spain. Because I think Spain is really interesting. And there were some major um, Spanish composers. Manuel de Falla, right? He was. Yeah. Is it uh, Faya or uh, Fala? Uh, Faya. It's one of those I've read it a zillion times. I've probably never said it until now. Yeah. <laughs> Who else? Uh, I mean...
1: There is... I, I mean, okay, so let's go to like... Let's go to guitarists. So there's, um, there's okay. Francisco Targa. I think is Spanish.
0: Yes. Yes, um, he
1: is. Ro- Rodrigo is he Spanish or is he Italian? Yeah,
0: Joaquin R- Rodrigo. Yeah. yeah, he's Spanish. Um, Sarasate, is Spanish. So, oh, Sarasate, of course. Yeah. De Pablo de Sarasate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's Spanish. Enrique Granados is a Spanish composer. Sure. Yeah. So, hmm. but anyway, so the point I, I anyway. was actually getting to was this: so there are some major Spanish composers that we love and study so joaquin rodrigo who wrote a really great uh guitar concerto i'm not mm-hmm. sure if you're familiar with it and a great it's, flute concerto. Um, yeah it's pretty oh did he, it's, I didn't know he yeah, wrote flute concerto. it's
1: monstrously difficult yeah yeah
0: oh interesting i love his guitar concerto it's funny it's it's a really it's one of those pieces i kind of use as a as a gateway into classical music for someone hmm. maybe that doesn't isn't too familiar mm-hmm. with the space because it's really accessible really cool it Sounds like it's Spanish. I mean, there's no question about it. It's from Spain. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's a guitar concerto, there's flamenco sort of vibes going on in it. It's really, really great. That's a much better gateway into classical music than Allegro and D. Yeah. I said I'd never talk about it again. I'm sorry. Oh come on, man. Yeah, it's been like what five minutes. I know, right? Uh, but yeah, so um yeah, we can put a clip of it here, but it's it's uh it's it's a really great piece. It's a really great piece, and you may have heard it before. It's used in a fair amount of movies and things. Pablo de Sarasate is one of the great Spanish composers. What's the name of? I always forget the name of this piece, but is the famous violin piece that's always, that was used a lot in the old silent films? Oh, it's the Gainerviessen. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like well, the most un-Spanish
1: title to it. <laughs> yeah. What What does that mean? Is it like a gypsy air? That's
0: cancelable by now. Oh, that makes sense. That, that That is a title that would make sense, though, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it does sound kind of, you know, Slavic, dare you say. It's, is he Geisen? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah,
1: it's a So it's Gypsy Airs, or in Spanish, Ares Gitanos.
0: Gotcha. Which I probably gotcha. butchered the pronunciation yeah. there, but... But yeah, that's one of the ones used in the classic Western silent films and such. You've heard that and you've certainly heard that before. So anyway, so there are a handful of what we would call great composers, or I think you and I would call like really good composers. So, but again, we don't usually think of Spain as one of the... (laughs) We don't usually in our bracket put Spain in the final four. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah. But something I can't help but notice was that so many of the great classical composers, the great German and Russian classical composers. So, so many of them were just obsessed and intoxicated by this idea of Spain with the spirit of Spain, the music. You look at, you know, so many, I mean, the Russian composers all wrote their Symphony Espanol. So many Italian and German and Austrian operas are set in Spain, of opera set in Spain, or heck, just the opera set in the city of Seville, Spain, are. The Barber of Seville by Rossini, again, most listeners would recognize at least part of it. I mean, even The Overture, is. The Overture was used in uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons and such. <laughs> it's used in everything. It's used everywhere, yeah. And um so the uh the opera Carmen by Georges Bizet. One of my favorites. Equally, if not even more famous than the Barber Seville, if that's even possible. <laughs> <laughs> Fidelio. Is that Beethoven? Yep. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that was Beethoven's opera. The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart, Don Giovanni also by Mozart. So all these, all these European, all these great European operas are, are set in the same city in Spain. Uh, Richard Strauss, his Don Juan and Don Quixote, mm-hmm. right? All these very Spanish-centric pieces and things. Um, I'm curious what you think it is. <laughs>
1: That's a really good. You know, you have they have a habit of asking me these questions that I've never thought about. And you know, here I am with a mic in front of me, <laughs> sort of thinking about something for the first time. <laughs> so I can't help but wonder if if some of it has to do with with the sort of peculiar demographic makeup of of Spain. Um, you know, I'm way out of my league here in terms of the, the sort of historical knowledge. Um but um, wasn't Spain sort of more of a a, a hub of um, the Moorish, you know, part of Europe and, and and that that kind of culture, like Islamic culture, um, was a yeah. lot more present in Spain than it was elsewhere. And you know, you also see it in in Turkey, where I think a, a lot of a lot of um, classical music is also set there. You know, it's a, it's a on the other side a similar mm. kind of. Um, a similar kind of thing, like the like um is not abduction from the seraglio set in turkey um it 's another mozart opera um i mean I think it 's a natural thing for composers at a certain time when we were sort of right on the cusp of globalization uh, as we know it in sort of modern hmm. day like you know real globalization to have a fascination with um with the with the orient as as they called it then um and I think the the sort of places in Europe where you could sort of get that kind of a flavor culturally in those days, I think were probably Spain and um, and, yeah. and Turkey. So I think that is that's why I bet that that had a lot to do with it. It's kind of it's kind of like the the exotic thing that isn't that that's that's close enough for you to actually sort of know something about it. You know, um, it, it has it has influences of some, from from afar, but it is in a context that is um, close and appreciable, and um, I don't know because you know the, you also see yeah. you also see um, a lot of um, you also see a lot of Shakespeare plays set in and in, like I think in e- I think Egypt is another one of these things where um, uh, like that's it, interesting it's yeah. another bridge between between Europe it's these 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 sort of ports out of Europe right like Turkey is one. Spain is another and Egypt is, is yet another, um, you know, you see like Antony and Cleopatra and, um, and, in, in Shakespeare, Aida, right. Um,
0: yeah. The opera by Verdi.
1: Yeah. So yeah. like, I wonder if that, um, if that has something to, to do with it. Like it's, it's these, these places where at a time when people were fascinated with with the other and with other cultures hmm. um these were the sort of entry points into into europe and the sort of exit points so i, I don't know that that's just my my first thoughts what about you what do you think
0: yeah i mean it's curious right because what you said about the the, col- the culture that you know the the moors brought into spain and things and that's um that's reflective in, in the in the music theory of spanish music right when we think of um spanish flamenco music it's not that different from what you think of when you think of middle eastern music you know harmonic minor scales and things right yeah you and, start
1: seeing like augmented seconds cropping up which you don't yeah, see often
0: yeah and in that western music and straight up western music yeah just very middle eastern sounding and very spanish sounding yeah they're not there's a lot of overlap in what we kind of perceive as, as those sounds and so so i think that part definitely remains true and. Also, what is it? The Pyrenees Mountains, right, separate the Iberian Peninsula from the rest of Europe. Essentially, so, it is I, Spain and Portugal. I do always, I always kind of thought. Again, I haven't been there, I can't say for myself, but always kind of thought they're they're doing their own thing. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, heck, with the the Moorish culture and the Islamic culture, they were when the rest of Europe was racing to become as catholic as possible <laughs> um or as protestant you know if you're re- rebellious you know englishmen mm-hmm. um yeah spain was doing something totally different so yeah it's it's exotic but accessible in things and if you're bizet right, writing an opera you know that has to premiere and have a good success in paris why not set it somewhere not french
1: yeah it's also a good way to to um to sort of set your your um your sight's on something vulgar right like not not vulgar as in crass, but vul, but vulgar as in um like uh, like of the people um mm-hmm, it's a it's a right. good way to to sort of write an opera and say um you know this is this is not going to be this sort of work that is um super say religious or super um for the for the kings you know this is this is for the people this is this is it's the equivalent of i mean it's it's like something like casablanca you know it's it's taking it's it's trying you're really (laughs) trying to take your audience into into a faraway land um with with the music and and And
0: both are set maybe like 30 miles apart from each other (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly (laughs) um
1: um, I I think that these places provide us with a a shining example of of what um, of what real multiculturalism or what real like cosmopolitanism can 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 be and how good it could be for the world you know mm. um, without the without the the Muslim Renaissance we we wouldn't have had the Western Renaissance you know um, it was it was mm-hmm. dependent mm-hmm. on on the on the finding of the the, the refining of the antiquities and the classics by Islamic cultures, and the exporting of that um, into into European culture, you know, via these gateways. Right. Something like Florence, and it, like I think Italy is another is another one of these places. That, something like Florence is a great example of that. You know, um, mm. you know, if it weren't for these, if it weren't for these places, um, I I don't know that um, that the Renaissance would have happened at exactly the time that it did. Um, you know it it would have it would have probably taken longer to to sort of rediscover the the our great antiquities and it would have taken longer to to get our scientific enterprises off board i think you know without Arabic mathematics um right, et cetera right. et cetera so yeah i, I mean y- yeah right. like is you know th- yeah. th- this is a good thing is what i'm trying to say
0: <laughs> yeah right right um yeah i mean so here let's maybe talk about some of the pieces set in spain so sure let's talk about carmen because right. it's funny i carmen it's one of my favorite i mean it's a long opera but it's one of my favorite pieces of music ever and and i think it's one of yours as well and i know you're someone that's not first in line to buy season tickets at the opera house so yeah
1: yeah <laughs> uh, i i I um i've long stood by pierre Boulez. Who, who said that um, to to fix opera, we must burn down all the opera houses, uh, which I think is <laughs> which I think is, he, he said that when he was a younger, you know, more of a firebrand than he is now. I mean, he's dead, but you know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. When he was right, right. Yeah. When, when he was young and could say shit like that and get away with it. Um,
0: right, right, but... right. When he wasn't, you know, the opening <laughs> concert at the at the Philharmonie <laughs> yeah. in Berlin or something. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't love opera, but I I absolutely adore Carmen. So. Yeah. Yeah, Carmen, dude. Carmen has it all. Like it had it has it all. Right. So, from the epic flamboyant overture that is easily in the top ten, top five most recognizable pieces of music. <laughs> also that overture trumpet players learn pretty quickly how how weirdly hard carmen is because hmm. that overture so after the after the fanfire part right after that you have that almost um corral part that part goes so low on the trumpet it actually goes into pedal tones so notes are written below where the trumpets supposed to really be able to play so you really have to cheat and like pull some of your slides out and really lip down and bend the pitch, uh, which is, again, that's not like proper trumpet technique in the classical sense. So your your tone's not gonna be as clear and things is gonna be a little more out of tune. And yeah, that's like right in the opening overture, the second part of the overture. And it's really hard It's and you're doubled up. It's a few trumpets playing it together and it's really loud. It's the weirdest trumpet excerpt ever. <laughs>
1: i i didn't didn't know that that's that's pretty crazy
0: i didn't either until until (laughs) i'm like what the okay here we go i have to play this somehow and i thought i was transposing into the wrong key i'm like is this really okay yeah yeah it was it's really weird um uh yeah and then there's so much of, of the opera that's so good like the instrumental parts the flute solo the vocal arias the the marches uh it's 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 a really great piece. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of um, there's a lot there are a lot
1: of. Um, I don't know if this is true, but my it, it feels like it. There are a lot more like show stopping numbers in Carmen than there are in most operas. You know, hmm. like most hmm. operas, you have one or one, two, maybe three. If you're if you're lucky, um, like numbers that that are like the showstoppers and that are played like outside the opera all the time you know they're sort of like right. plucked from the opera um most don't right, most right. don't get that many you know like maybe the overture and then mm-hmm.
0: one song here or there maybe another one yeah but let's take barbara of seville for example sure right yeah. the overture is very famous, famous used in bugs bunny cartoons and then um what's the name of the famous aria it's uh, I can't tell you the name off the top of my head, but... Uh, oh, no, no. Oh, I do. I can't. Wait, hold on, hold yeah. on. I got this. It's Largo Al Fortuum, I think? I think you're right. You'll recognize it. You'll recognize it. It's yeah. Opening to Mrs. Doubtfire. It's in a ton of movies. It's, it's, uh, la 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 yeah. la <laughs> yeah.
1: And, uh, and that's pretty much yeah. it. it,
0: right? Yeah, right. So those are like the big numbers from that opera.
1: Yeah, but Carmen. I mean, let's. We got the overture. Yeah. We got yeah. um, the entrac to uh, Act. Both entracs to Act Two and Act Three are really famous. Yeah, um, the Habanera does, doesn't even need to be said.
0: and on track to act four is actually pretty famous too sure it was also my ringtone for like eight years oh so.
2: yeah
0: nice <laughs> <laughs> yeah we so the habanera of course the toreador song um Torridor, dun, um dun, dun, dun
1: What's the one that I'm thinking of? Um, the umpum pump ram pam 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 pam,
2: pump 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 pam pam pam, pump 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 pump
1: It's, it's sung by Carmen. It's sung by the lead yeah. female. Uh,
0: yeah. It, it's 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 in there. It's in there. Yeah.
1: Uh, and there's there's also the um plum, yeah. yeah. It's full of. I mean, let's take this as an example. You know, there's this genre of the operatic fantasy, right? Yes, um, yes. Th- there's this thing where it really was a- an outcrop of the time when when opera was really becoming big, and so was the virtuoso. Like the the institution of the virtuoso performer was also getting really big. So um, we got this whole slew of compositions where where virtuosos would sort of play like theme and variations on the famous themes from, from um, really famous operas of the day, you know? And it was a right. sort of cheaper way to, to go see an opera because you could sort of hear all the famous tunes from it, Yeah, um, you know, back right. before the days of CDs and stuff like that. Um, so you can see what was really popular from these operas by looking at these operatic fantasies. Um, and even if you take ones like the fantasy for *La Traviata* or something, the the famous opera by Verdi, mm-hmm. you know, maybe four or five numbers in the piece, and you recognize one or two of them yeah. right off the bat. Dun 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 dun. The drinking song that we yeah. all know. <laughs> yeah, Um <laughs> the Carmen fantasy. Regardless of which version you're looking at, um, you know, pretty much I think all of the pieces in the Carmen fantasy, the layman will recognize. They're all so famous it's yeah. crazy it's really not it's really not common it's lo- it's, it's really crazy actually. it's less common than you would think to just have like you know six or seven literal show stopping numbers in one opera that's not how operas are built usually but you know it seems like these just was content to just sort of knock it out of the park every few every few um songs
0: <laughs> yeah it's pretty weird and also the something you never see something you never see but the orchestral suite to to carmen i think there's a few of them are performed a lot recorded a lot Bernstein recorded all of them within New York Phil and if I mean and they're really good recordings too so yeah yeah there's orchestral suites to operas I can't think of any others that are really performed I can't really think of others that were written to begin with but the the orchestral suites to operas are, I mean the orchestral there, there's one for Lulu but oh is there okay yeah but it's really not performed yeah. very often at all yeah um, I was gonna say I can't remember ever seeing it on a program yeah. but but again and so, contrary to what we were saying earlier about a certain other piece, Carmen's the opposite Carmen it gets people to the concert hall because it's awesome, fun crowd pleasing music, but it's also like really good music that that you can really dissect. Uh, I think musicians love playing it yeah. and it's it's not just showcasey and uh you know cheap claps or stuff. it's actually it's a really great piece and yeah, no, I, um it's almost like the nutcracker I would say of the opera world like it's maybe to less as a less of a universal degree but still it's like most opera companies do put on Carmen every year and it sells out the opera house but it's really really good and it's because of that reason maybe
1: yeah i i mean i'm i'm glad you said that because i think that's the kind of stuff that the industry sort of needs to lean into again to to sort of contrast mm-hmm. it with the Mozart and D which i know we said we we wouldn't talk about it again but here we are um, the Mozart in D. <laughs> I'm calling it that. The from Mozart in D. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> oh
0: god. It, it, that's more an appropriate title, actually. Yeah. Why not? Why not? <laughs> Playing Mozart in the key of D. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Is it like a leker? Who knows? Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. No, But it's
1: it's the kind of thing that the classical music world needs to to lean into because it is it is a crowd pleaser and and there's no denying that you know one needs crowd pleasers you know you can't just you yeah. can't just sort of survive on a on a program of of Bach fugues for an entire concert cycle right. that's not going to happen right right, um, right 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 so you you do need like you know big crowd pleasers, but it doesn't mean that you need to sacrifice the quality of the music there, there's so much music you know in the history of the yeah, world yeah um
0: they're, they're we're, we're we're discovering more and more of it every exa- year, yeah exactly
1: <laughs> you know give it a few more years and we'll be into the you know the Kochel catalog seven hundreds so yeah um yeah. can't wait but yeah no yeah uh, brilliant point yeah good pieces that are crap I mean, are just you know
0: they exist and we need to find more of them and, and sort of you know get what we can out of them yeah follow follow the lead of the nutcracker follow the lead of carmen these are great i mean th- these are amongst the greatest pieces ever yeah right by any reasonable account and people love it you know so yeah i mean yeah carmen what you said is true like a a testament to the success or i mean or maybe the other way around i mean a testament to how good carmen is and how how much great content there is in it you know it's uh i mean it's what it's close to three three and a half hours four hours long maybe it's four acts yeah it's four acts but but yeah so that and think about how much this piece has been remixed right there's there's two major violin fantasies You've played it, right? <laughs> I played the one that was written actually for the flute. Um, oh, there's one for yeah, flute. Yeah, r- written oh, who, by Bourne.
1: Yeah, as opposed to the the two violin ones oh, were written by Sarasante, who, who we talked about, and by Franz Waxman, mm. who we also talked about, I think, in the film music yeah. podcast. Yeah,
0: um, yeah, one of the great. It's funny. Yeah, Franz Waxman. He called himself Waxman when he immigrated to America to oh, really? fit in. That's yeah. what he did back in the 20s and 30s. But yeah, no, he did some of the did the brilliant score for. Still probably my favorite Hitchcock film, Rebecca. Mm -hmm. Also, Hitchcock's first film he made in the United States, so... Really brilliant film. And yeah, Franz Voxman did a brilliant score for that. I did score for of Frankenstein. But yeah, so hit, which carbon fantasy do you like more out of the, the Voxman or the Sarasante one? I like the Voxman more. What about you? I do too, actually. I do too. I, I like the Sarasante one too. Yeah. Um, I don't dislike it. Uh, if I had to pick one. Um, what's your what's your calculus? Yeah, so yeah, I guess I, I like it more. I like, um, this may sound silly, but I like the way it starts and I like the way it ends. <laughs> Um, i always thought the sarasate ended a little awkwardly like it's not like it's it's just like a pretty boring cadence at the end um it, it's okay um but i mean again the sarasate fantasy I, I i like a lot too so it's it's fine the voxman though i do kind of like how it starts with the with the overture at the at the beginning I, I think that's kind of a cool touch um yeah that's kind of my initial take but again i i like both i like both
1: yeah, I've always thought that the the unsurprisingly, the the Voxman is a bit more it's a bit more cinematic. Um, okay. and <laughs> its, its scope. Um, the, the 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 Sarasate, the structure of the Sarasate kind of strikes me as similar to the rest of the pieces in the sort of opera fantasy genre, you know? Hmm. If if you listen to That's a lot fair. of them. Yeah. You know, there's there's sort of yeah. um there's like opening, you know, number number uh, theme and variations. Um, there's a slow tune thrown in there somewhere, and then finale. You know, um, it, it yeah, sort of neatly right. falls into that structure. Whereas the the Voxman is more, it's more unpredictable, and it seems to, yeah. The the, the the Voxman it seems like it jumps around a lot more. I I could be wrong on that. Like it mm-hmm. it, it sort of jumps between yeah, numbers yeah. a lot more, and it it almost it almost um, when I listen to it, it almost sounds like I'm listening to. Um, Again, unsurprisingly, like the Rebecca suite or something. It's not, it's not, it doesn't, yeah, it actually yeah. doesn't read like a fantasy so much as it reads like a, um, as a suite uh, with, with some sort of more showy elements thrown in.
0: becca Suite is really good too yeah yeah <laughs> yeah no I, I agree like the the voxman you could if you lived in an, an alternate universe where if you lived in, in an alternate universe where there was no carmen opera if you heard the voxman you couldn't mistake that all right that was a piece just written for violin where if you just heard the Sarasate, you could tell it's a variation off of something
1: that's exactly it no that's that's well put i think that's exactly it um and I wonder if it has to do with the fact that the Voxman was obviously not written um, contemporaneously with the the sort of the birthing of the opera fantasy genre, you know, whereas Sarasate, you know, it was written in that time when, again, mm-hmm. like, people, ne- like, operas weren't necessarily put on all the time. And even if they were, people couldn't afford to right. see it. So they, so, you know, they paid right. basically to see a virtuoso play the biggest hits from it, you know, whereas by yeah. the time Voxman wrote his common fantasy, we were past that. You know, we had, I don't know if we had CDs yeah. by then, but we had like recordings, you know.
0: We had records. Yeah. We had
1: records, yeah. So, um, yeah. so it was a more, it's a more like fide piece of music, you know, than it was. It, it serves less of a yeah. purpose practically. Therefore, I think it's more artistic.
0: Um, I assume you're familiar, of course, with that Gil Shaham recording of the Sarasate fantasy oh. with uh, Claudio Obato and the Berlin Philharmonic.
1: Yeah, that's one of the first videos that I saw that made me want to become a musician, like professional. Oh, awesome. You know? I saw that and I was like, I don't know what he's doing, but whatever that is, I want to be doing that.
0: Yeah, that video was on YouTube back in the early days of YouTube. Yeah,
1: like 2007 or
0: something. Yeah, it was before YouTube was acquired by Google. It was before they had spell check because I kept spelling it wrong. So Nice, it, classic. It, it, it didn't come up. <laughs> it was like Sarasante. Sarasanti. Sate. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, that, that's an awesome performance. It's a video performance on YouTube. Or I guess, maybe it's still on YouTube. I, I assume still I don't still think is. so, actually, still because it. it's...
1: it's um, oh, really?
0: <laughs> yeah, it was from the Berlin Philharmonic New
1: Year's concert, I think, to, to maybe 1999, when they did a whole Carmen-themed okay. um, New Year's concert. Um, and now I think it's available on Berlin Philharmonic's digital concert hall. So I, I, I assume they've trawled YouTube and deleted the the um bootlegged videos. <laughs> but you can find it, in, you know, it. We'll, yeah. we'll put a link in the show notes. It's worth it's worth even if you don't have a subscription to the to the digital concert hall, it's worth getting a ticket, you know, just to see this one concert. It's it's
0: amazing. Dude, no, no I, I'm a, I'm am a believer. Dude, it's still on here. What the hell oh, are you nice. talking about? All right. Hey man, I mean <laughs> yeah. I assume that institutions dude, are just dude, there's like through. a few uploads. Yeah. Well we, there's one from ten years ago, there's one from eight years ago dude that's ain't going anywhere man i guess they knew that uh that that, that video was
1: like raking in the the views because they haven't gotten rid of it but um it, it seems like the the berlin philharmonic and other orchestras that are going like more online recently have, have gone through youtube and deleted a lot of the sort of old school like the og videos that we used to watch in like the
0: early 2010s yeah yeah
1: you know but yeah <laughs>
0: yeah right no um yeah if anything this video is leading more people to the digital concert hall yeah it's, wow it's filmed really well the music's great what a cool piece yeah. yeah okay I'll pay for more of this but yeah so no anyway that that performance is awesome and the orchestra is just trying to keep up too because Gilbert Hammond is just shredding it he's just laying it down on the violin
1: yeah he's a he's a beast um i I don't know how he plays the way he does it's it's really it's a cliche but it's
0: devilish you know um yeah yeah he just uh he's so great he's so friendly and joyful in his interviews too
1: (laughs) he's just he, he just is he seems like the nicest guy ever
0: yeah He's just like, oh, hi, I'm Gil. I play the violin. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. He, he he'll, he's one of those like, people yeah. that'll introduce himself to you even after, even after
0: you just paid like a hundred dollars to go see him play. It's more common than you think it would be in the classical music world, you know. Because and the way I see it, and Gil definitely falls into this category, right? The the great, like the truly great musicians, violinists, pianists, all that. In their eyes, if they're not all that great. They're still just trying to get better, mm-hmm. right? And and that mindset is what led them to become how good, become as good as they are.
1: Yeah, and it's also more true with with music because you really cannot be the best at everything. You know, there, there's just no way mm. you can be the best musician. You know, there, there's so many things to do in music. Right. And the great the greatest musicians right. keep that in mind, and they're they're sort of very aware of that. You know. Um. Like yeah. keeping with Gil Shaham, like one of the coolest things I saw was an interview of his that maybe still is on YouTube, um, where he, he's playing with um, his wife, Adele Anthony, who's also a violinist, who's, to- who's totally mm-hmm. wonderful. Um, and they are playing, I forget what piece it is, but they're playing something with the Chamber Music Society, I think. Um, so they're playing within a chamber music setting with some people who are professional chamber musicians. Mm -hmm. Um, and Gil is, he seems legitimately nervous because, you know, even, (laughs) even though he is like a superstar soloist, he recognizes that the skill of playing violin in front of an orchestra, like the skill of playing violin concertos from memory in front of an orchestra when you're jet lagged and, you know, you're (laughs) like in the middle of a long tour and you're sick, that is a very different skill than, um, finding yourself in the middle of a Mendelssohn octet you know yeah, and having to sure, sort of play right, right. extremely sensitively and blend with everyone those are two different kinds of musicians and bad musicians sort of bluster through everything thinking or let's say like lesser musicians um they sort of bluster not cuz they could be you know good musicians but lesser musicians they sort of bluster through everything yeah. with the same attitude and and they think you know if i if i've achieved success in this arena then i I identify myself with the with the idea of being a successful musician. You know, like I am. Mm-hmm, I am right, good. Right. I am good at playing violin. But but great <laughs> musicians, I think, they realize that that music is totally content dependent. And even if you're Gil Shaham, if if you know someone throws you into the middle of uh, an octet, there's going to be someone who's a professional octet player who's more sensitive on the second violin part than you could ever be. Um, or at least be in that right, moment, you know. Right. A- and even more so if, if even if you're Gil Shaham and you're selling out Carnegie Hall playing Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, um, if you put him in a sort of dingy basement bar and um, and told him to improv some blues, um, you know, yeah. I think he would yeah. recognize that um, he's a bit out of his league there. And that's the that that kind of humility is the is the mark of of someone who is actually truly a, a sort of great and sensitive musician, you know?
0: Speaking of Gil Shaham, I mean, he's... Um, his record... So speaking of film music and classical music, the gold Violin Concerto, which Ooh. we may have brought up way back in the early days. Man, that is that is just a phenomenal piece of music. It's just, uh, so Eric Wolfgang Korngold, great early um, film composer. He composed the score for the Seahawk and so many great, the um, the golden age of Hollywood, so many great film scores. His violin concerto, so great. So good. And it almost sounds like a film score, the overture or the not overture, but I guess the opening and such. Yeah, it sounds like it belongs in a movie. And it kind of makes sense. Corn Gold was a film composer, but the violin concerto is so good. And the recording of Gil Shaham playing it is just phenomenal.
1: there are two recordings of Gil Shaham, both of which are my two favorite recordings. Um, one of them is an earlier... Of, of that concerto? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of the Gold concerto. Yeah. One of them is earlier, I think, with the London Symphony and Andre Previn. Um, okay. And the other one is a more recent live performance. I don't remember who the orchestra or the conductor is with that, but they're both phenomenal. And the way that Gil Shaham plays Gold is, is, um, is just lovely. And... Um, I, I think actually a fair amount of the Korngold violin concerto is um is uh is sort of reworked versions of, of scenes from his film music. Um so, you know, it, mm. not not only is it unsurprising in that, you know, he he was a film composer, but um I think he used some of his material from from his time composing for film in this concerto because it was the first concerto that Korngold wrote. It was the first uh, piece of classical music that Korngold wrote, I think after um hmm, interesting after he wrote for hollywood for some time you know because he was a yeah. quote-unquote classical whatever composer in europe um right and there was there were some problems with um with the war <laughs> and anti-semitism um you know to, to to put it mildly um you know I thought you were going
0: to say, yeah, there are some problems in Europe in yeah. the 30s. <laughs> <laughs> he ran into some uh, some issues. But it was the same issues that Franz Voxman ran into. Exactly. Being right? I mean, a Jewish composer in Europe. They, they all fled to Hollywood, which had a big open market for yeah. composers. Yeah. And all this film score music. So, that, yeah.
1: And I think the story goes that, um, I, I, I can't verify this, but I, I think there was some, some bad situation where a lot of his the scores of his actual classical pieces were, were burned. Um, hmm. and, and maybe what was something, something like an anti-Semitic attack on, on his house. Um, yeah, and, I mean, I sadly yeah, believe it. Yeah. it. It was, it's, it's all, it's all very sad. And I, he lost a lot of the music. I think long story short, he, you know, he, he lost a lot of the music that he wrote in that period, um, in, in a sort of violent oh, really? way. Um, and when he fled i think he was he he was so bitter about it that he he just he resolved never to to to, to not write that kind of music again with, you know and then yeah like you said hollywood had this huge open market so so then he transitioned and wrote music for films and applied his genius there and i think when the corn violin concerto came out i think that was when he decided okay i think it has been enough time the the, the world is better you know the you know the, the the problems of the 30s and the 40s um have sort of uh i'm I'm ready to sort of put them past me so i think the, the yeah. Violin concerto was his the was his first um like re-entry into the world of like classical composing whatever if you want to make that distinction oh, wow. which and, and so he used sure. a lot of um a lot of like motifs and and stuff like that from his from his film score days um, which I think is a nice homage. It's, it's sort of like he went into film and took a lot of his classical chops, um, and brought it to film. And then eventually he went back to classical with his violin concerto and then brought back some of his film chops. And, and that's why it sounds like a, a film score. And, um, it's totally beautiful. It's, it's one of my favorite pieces of music.
0: Wow. It makes me love that piece even more. I mean, I, I was not aware of any of that actually. Um, Oh, that's super cool.
1: Yeah. And that, that's, and while we're at it that that cd of gil shaham where he plays the corngold violin concerto with andre Previn and the london symphony mm. um he also plays the barber violin concerto which is also beautiful but also um mm. he plays uh i think an arrangement of of the incidental music to to much ado about nothing which corngold also wrote um a score for oh um and gil shaham plays a version of it for for violin and orchestra and that is also really gorgeous
0: So, getting back to Carmen, <laughs> we went far afield on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, Carmen. So, I mean, there's many great recordings people can check out. Um, the one with Alina Garanka playing the role of Carmen. I think with the Metropolitan Opera. I think that one's become one of the main standards, but there's a great one Claudio Abbado conducts, I think at La Scala mm-hmm. a while back, or maybe it was the Royal Opera in London or maybe both. I can't, I can't recall, but
1: I don't, I don't remember his um, orchestra, but it's, but it's a good recording.
0: Yeah, that's a great one. Um, the Leonard Bernstein recordings of the Carmen suite with the New York Philharmonic is really, really great. Again, like if, you're new to classical music and don't know where to start. Carmen's not not the worst place. Or heck, if you're just into opera and don't know where to start, Carmen is one of the better ones.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I will point to two things that make Carmen sort of slightly an anomaly, not unique, but anomalous. Mm. One thing: sure. the main character Carmen um, is not a soprano. She's a she's a mezzo soprano.
0: Oh, that's true. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. That's because, I don't know why, that's it just so happens that, for the most part, the protagonists um, happen to be sopranos and tenors. Um, mm-hmm, in right. this case, she, she's, she's not exactly a protagonist. She's, um, she's something of an anti-hero, which is, again, very cinematic. It's, it's very sort of right. Shakespearean and sort of modern drama, but you don't see it too often in opera. Like The roles of, of mm-hmm. good and evil are pretty clearly demarcated in opera. But Carmen mm-hmm. is a sort of ambivalent mm-hmm. figure. Um, and her voice reflects that. You know, she's not, she's not soaring above everyone. She is, she's down to earth um, right. in, her, in her vocal range, even. Um, right. and, and the second thing is that oh, Carmen doesn't make her entrance until, what, half an hour in? Maybe even 45 minutes? I guess so, oh, yeah. It takes a yeah. fair while. The habanera is, is on the second half of the first act. Is when it happens so this is also right. again not unique but anomalous and again something that you would see in more of a sort of modern drama like a cinema or yeah. something that you would associate more with the theater than you would with with music or with opera you know it's yeah. it's like a it's almost like a narrative device um that you wouldn't expect when First. you're just going
0: to see like music you know again Carmen is just one of those pieces i think that just keeps on giving and to your point earlier you spoke of Scheherazade, right? It's kind of like a swashbuckling <laughs> piece. And, um, Carmen is kind of like that dude. Carmen is sort of cinematic in just, I mean, it was written well before the era of film I and mean, was written, I forget when in the 1800s, but somewhere in the 1800s, somewhere in the middle, middle, late, something like that. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, so it was written well, well before film, you know, it was, uh, the, the faintest of concepts yeah it's a quasi adventure tale it's fun it's great it's it's good and it's accessible right as you we are saying and and again i i hadn't quite thought of that but the point you said earlier yeah this is the sort of things we think the institutions the orchestras the, the opera companies and stuff these are the sort of things we should be leaning into to get more people into into the sort of music
1: yeah totally um, to, to your point about it being, being like film, um, the, the interesting thing about Carmen, like the, the, the music is, is totally wonderful. Right. Like, like, like we've been talking about, yeah, but, yeah. um, yeah, the, the opera, like the, the, like one of my main problems with opera is that I would rather, if I like the music, I would rather listen to the music alone than have to deal with the opera mm. itself because I, I find that the mm-hmm. opera rarely adds much, if anything, um, in the way of drama. Because um, most opera tends to be, I think of it as kind of pre-Shakespearean drama. Because um, <laughs> Shakespeare, yeah, because yeah, yeah, the great Shakespearean innovation
0: was... Shut up, Siri. <laughs> <laughs> actually don't blame her on that one. That one's yeah, that's, can, that's fair.
1: Yeah, I can see. It. <laughs>
0: um,
1: <laughs> um, oh yeah, yeah. But like, I think that the great sort of Shakespearean innovation that, that came with um, with characters like Iago, Macbeth, Edmund from *King Lear*, mm-hmm. and Hamlet is is this this notion of um, of, of sort of self hearing, like th- these characters who speak out loud and they and they sort of hear themselves and they change their actions based on what they realize they are saying and doing. It's, it's basically the, the concept of like the self-aware character who changes his or her mind about something based on how the play is going. You know, it seems obvious right, now because right. like all movies do this um, mm-hmm. and like most drama does this, but um, it, it was largely a Shakespearean invention, you know? Um, yeah. he refined it to the point that it's at now, and most operas, um, the the my my big problem with them is that the the, the dramatic part of the opera fails entirely because it seems to ignore that that innovation totally. Right? Opera characters do not yeah. say what you will about them. They they do not hear themselves. They they are they <laughs> they plant their feet and they just sing, and they don't really they don't really. You know, they don't act like real people in the world. Like most people, you say something and you you evaluate yourself immediately. You say, like, should I have said that? What does it say about me that I just said that? And how do I feel about the way that I'm presenting myself to this world? You know, operatic characters, Mm -hmm. by and large, totally lacking in this dimension of of uh, of humanism. (laughs) Um, And modern operas actually have that, you know, like. Something like Nixon in China, you know, ha- has this, has yeah. this it's, it is a real drama.
0: By, by John Adams, yeah. right? Um, yeah. it, it's yeah. a real,
1: it's a real, um, it's a real drama that is, that happens to be set to music, you know? Um,
0: yeah, this, yeah. This it, is it's why... a great opera too, actually. I, yeah. I I enjoy the piece a lot. Yeah. Totally wonderful.
1: And, and, and Debussy does this too with, with pellias and Melisande. Um, you know, that's why that's why the I actually like these very few operas. Um, but Carmen is is maybe the earliest example of that. It's the characters in Carmen seem real, like it's it's a real drama. And Carmen actually, it's, you actually get the sense that Carmen hears herself when she's singing and, and knows the implications right. of her words and, and actually self-reflects on what it says about her and how she might want to change her attitude or... Um, you know, double down to to be more manipulative. Um, you you basically get the sense that these are pliable characters. You know, like you're not you're not just sort of standing there hmm. um, thinking that these are sort of like you know Calvinist characters where they only have one route that they can go <laughs> on. You actually get the sense that there's a fork in the road, and you know structurally that she's going to have to take this one. But it, there's actually the illusion of choice, you know, which actually makes it lifelike, and it doesn't make it. Basically, what I'm saying is that like a film version of Carmen would actually work, whereas a film version of, hmm, say, yeah. like the abduction from the, uh, the uh, an abduction from the Zoraleo, the, the Mozart opera, like a film mm-hmm. version of that would just be boring because that's yeah. not how characters work,
0: you know, in real life. It's funny. And also with Carmen too, you get the sense in some operas, maybe some of Mozart's and things where there's some great ideas here but why didn't he just make this a symphony (laughs) these are great (laughs) melodies this is great great music right exactly (laughs) right where yeah there's the music and then like the actual stage part the actual performance the operatic drama part comes secondary it was like an afterthought but with carmen you don't get that right Mm -hmm. it's it's all all up there
1: yeah yeah and you and you really feel better for having seen the whole performance you know in a way yeah. that with with mozart operas yeah like, like i said like you said it's not like you ever hear mozart opera and you think you know this is garbage music no it's not garbage music it's just i don't know why we had to go through all this pain to do costume design and and set design um if right the, right if <laughs> the end result
0: of the drama is going to be basically nothing you know um i was just going to say it's funny too a lot of the mozart operas you hear orchestras perform the overture a lot just as the first piece on the program. They play the overture to the Magic Flute and then they'll go play a symphony by Haydn or something, right? Just as a, you know, first piece on the program. With Carmen, you would never see that. You would never see an orchestra just play the Carmen overture. Not because it's not good. No, the Carmen overture, as we mentioned earlier, it's iconic, it's famous. It's one of the great opera overtures. But no orchestra would just play that alone on a program Then play something different. No, because it it's incomplete. Like... The music is just one aspect. It just, it just wouldn't work. It just wouldn't work. Yeah. It,
1: is, it is sort of a dramatic play and a film in the way that we've come to appreciate in the modern sense, which is why it still holds up. Um, I think a lot of like Mozart operas, you have to sort of watch them and sort of try to slip into the context of the time. Yeah. Whereas Carmen, you can watch Carmen played uh, to a T as it is said to, to play it in the score today, you know, and you still instantly recognize it as something that is modern and something that is now and and hip and relevant yeah um in, in a way that i don't think you do for um or i'm really picking on mozart operas yeah, today yeah, i don't know why but yeah yeah yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah um but yeah no i mean and come on shooter we all know a carmen in our lives <laughs> we all know a carmen in
1: our lives <laughs> I I will say I will say um you know one one great one great thing with the Elena Garanka performance is is that she's actually a believable mm-hmm.
0: Carmen. Um she is yeah. yeah. Oh she she like commits to it 110%. Yeah. She's yeah. No but but she's also she's also a good actress. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um and and Carmen actually demands that, you know. Um there are certain roles like um like La Traviata um where the mm-hmm. the role of Violetta it does not actually require someone to be a great actress. I think you you actually need to bring something to the role that is that is legitimately dramatic and actually bring your sort of acting chops, you know, to 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 the role.
0: And again, it's it's a piece that's been remixed and modern. I mean, all these variations, all these fantasies, all these duet arrangements of the melodies. It's been used in film so much.
1: Yeah, the, and and those those yeah. pieces
0: are always interesting because that's that's fairly rare that. Yeah, and so this kind of ties back to our original topic. When what was it about Spain, right? And and yeah. <laughs> right because Georges Bizet wrote Carmen. I mean, he's a French composer and a very rigorous one. You know, like he,
1: he's the, the kind of composer that would put fugues in the middle of his symphonies. It's that's not common. So he he was a very proper, r- rigorous <laughs> French composer.
0: But right, it's like why why did he write Carmen and not Colette? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We'll probably never know, but yeah, one of the reasons is I think he wanted, yeah, he wanted to do something different. <laughs> Spain was different than the rest of Europe. I think there's a lot more similarities between France and Germany, and of course, two very different countries, societies and everything, but at least in the classical music world, it's probably a lot more common between France and Germany, and of course, Germany and Austria or something. Spain's kind of a different corner of the continent and and uh, had something different to offer, and maybe, maybe it's just as simple as that. Um, do, do you know, do you know, um, Stromae? Stromae, of course, yeah. the great Belgian singer. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, are you familiar with his Carmen?
0: Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, which one is that? It's not, what's the name of that song? Is, I think it's, it's just called Carmen? I think it's just called Carmen, yeah. Y- you should... It's the one we talked about Twitter, Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> right. We, we should put a, we should put a clip here. I don't know if that'll get us flagged because he's super popular, but, um... Oh, but yeah, I, I think yeah, that, that, um, that's a pretty great take on, on Carmen, you know,
2: his Carmen fantasy,
0: <laughs> his Carmen fantasy. Exactly.
1: <laughs> when, when you said, when you said remix, I, I you know, I, I immediately thought of that. So, oh. <laughs> but, but of course, even the yeah. other Carmen fantasies are just remixes, you know, they're just old school. The fantasy really
0: is the OG remix. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really is. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. No. It sounds good. Anyways, Carmen, oh, it's great. It's yeah. great. Way, way better than the Lego Indy.
1: <laughs> yeah. Way better than a Lego Indy. We should put that on a T-shirt.